Walt Disney once said, We keep moving forward, opening new doors and doing new things because we're curious, and curiosity keeps leading us down new paths. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about old school and new school RPGs. So, I suppose that we should really break this down, because RPGs are kind of a big topic to begin with, and we're talking about the differences between the old ones and new ones, so we should really start by saying that in RPGs there are two major camps. There are the gamist games and the narrativist games. For gamist games, our examples are going to be taken from D&D. There are other gamist games out there. GURPS, arguably, is a much more gamist game than D&D. And Traveler is another example of a gamist game. But D&D is kind of a cultural touchstone. Everybody kind of knows what you're talking about when you talk about D&D. And yeah, you can play D&D with a narrative bent. But for the most part, D&D's rules are meant to apply a certain type of gameplay. Kind of a hack and slash, high adventure, fantasy fantasy RPG where you are making all of these forays into dungeons, seeking treasure, and defeating monsters. It's not about a big social narrative. On the narrativist side, we're going to be talking about World of Darkness. Much like D&D, World of Darkness is kind of a touchstone of narrativist games. There are more narrativist games. Fudge and Fate, are, I believe, are really good examples of more narrativist games. Perhaps even more narrativist, again, than World of Darkness. But everyone kind of knows what you're talking about when you're talking about the World of Darkness. Vampire the Requiem and Vampire the Masquerade are kind of cultural touchstones in the gaming community and you kind of know what is being referred to when you talk about those games. So that's why we're going to use those as our primary examples. They're not by any means exclusive examples, and they may not even be the ideal examples, but they are very strong examples that we feel are going to be most easily accessible to people to understand what we're getting at. Also, when people usually talk about old school versus new school, they have a very particular bent. John and I are, in fact, very much new school type gamers. We like new school games, but we aren't going to go into old school game bashing mode. We're actually going to be talking about the high points and low points of both old school and new school games. Finally, to define our terms more specifically, when we talk about old school games, we are talking about D&D 1st and 2nd edition. When we are talking about new school games, we're talking about D&D 5th edition. 3rd and 4th edition are sort of a transitional phase. 4th edition is kind of its own thing all by itself, but 3rd edition and Pathfinder are sort of a transition between old school and new school games, and are kind of a high point of when you had sort of a mingling of the two ideas. 5th edition gets a more pure version of the new school, and... Second edition is a more pure version of the old school. Likewise, with World of Darkness, when we're talking about that, 
We're talking about Vampire the Masquerade versus the Chronicles of Darkness version of Vampire the Requiem. The World of Darkness version of Vampire the Requiem is kind of, again, partway between transitional period. So, let's dive right in and talk about old school games. What are the high points of old school games? Well, I think probably the biggest high point of old school games is the idea of a shared setting, a shared world that old school games had. On the game aside, with D&D and such, you had, like, Faerun, the Forgotten Realms, you had uh, Orth in Greyhawk, and you had Dragonlance's Kryn. You had these different worlds that were recognizable, that were touchstones, that had novels written about them, that had recognizable characters, settings, locations. All of this sort of invited you to play in the world of these great gaming masters, to be part of their narratives. You were basically setting out to be part of their creations. And that was a big touchstone. If you said, I'm running a game in Forgotten Realms, that gave someone a huge number of ideas of what was already taking place in your world, what kind of things to expect in your game. You may have setting notes about it or locations that made it your own, but at the same time, you were in the shared setting. This was a shared sort of experience in this sense. Likewise, there were these old school campaigns and adventures that many old school gamers went through. I love the Tomb of Horrors. And I hate the Tomb of Horrors. You will hear me go on and on about the Tomb of Horrors. But even if you love or hate the Tomb of Horrors, if you've played through the Tomb of Horrors, that's a thing that you can talk about any other old school gamer that's been through it. It's the same Tomb of Horrors. Likewise, the old Ravenloft campaign. It's the same Ravenloft campaign, whether I run it or John runs it. He, of course, will tweak it his way. I'll, of course, tweak it my way. Then when our players get together, they can talk and go, oh, how did you get past this part. Oh, that's amazing. In old school gaming, that was a big thing. If you played Dragonlance, you were playing through Dragonlance. You were going through what the heroes of the Lance went through. You might approach it from different angles. There might be different twists that your DM added to it. But everyone had this same shared experience of playing through Dragonlance. You could go online to various forums and talk to other DMs who had run their players through Dragonlance during the bad old days of the internet where it was hard to find these sort of things. That was the touchstone of the community. That was you reaching out and having these shared experiences experiences with other gamers. There was this shared setting. Likewise, on the narrative side, oh my goodness, the old school World of Darkness setting was all-encompassing. The meta plot was everything. In a big way, you weren't really playing your own story. You were playing through the story of the World of Darkness, of this, of this Vampire the Masquerade, of this Werewolf the Apocalypse, of this Mage the Ascension. All of these worlds were playing out with you. You had these giant metaplots. Every book added new stories to this metaplot that you were playing through with new expectations for where it was going. And yes, there were branches in the metaplot. There were different ways that different scenarios could play out, but there was an assumption that you were following this meta plot, and if you abandoned that meta plot entirely and just went off and wrote your own game in your own world, you were actually missing out on the majority of the material. The majority of the material was meant to build exclusively on this specific shared meta plot. It wasn't a game built to be played in any setting, it was a game that played you through this setting, and that's how all of the Old World of Darkness games were. The entire line 
mind was meant to take you through these specific metaplot experiences and give you all of these different players, settings, and worlds and let you play through your games in these settings with these characters. The next high point of old school gaming was the exclusivity of it. Every school had their D&D group that was hidden off in one little corner. All of the people who played World of Darkness would wear their black trench coats and hang out outside the nightclub smoking their clove cigarettes. These weren't people that you could just go up to and go, Hey guys, I want to play a game. You had to be invited in. You had to learn the secret handshakes, the little nods. You had to track them down in some cases. And on another note, the games themselves were made to be sort of these exclusive experiences. We talked a lot about how D&D used to require a ninth grade reading level to even play. You really had to have a ninth grade reading level to understand the rules, to understand the settings, to understand the game. You had to have a college level mathematics degree half the time to be able to fight some of the high level enemies. Uh, Thacko. In, in old school second edition and first edition, Thacko was a big thing. It was two hit armor class zero. And for those who don't remember it, the way it worked was you had this number that was the number you would have to roll on a d20 in order to hit an enemy that had an armor class of zero. Higher armor classes were actually bad and were subtracted from the Thacko of the person trying to attack you. So if you had a 20 Thacko and you were trying to attack someone with a 10 armor class, you'd subtract the 10 from the 20 to get 10. That's the number you need to hit. If you had a negative 2 armor class, meanwhile, it'd be basically impossible to hit if you had a Thacko of 20 because you'd need to roll a 22, which couldn't be done. And you see how that just gets unnecessarily complicated, but in a sense, that created an exclusive nature to it. It made you feel special and important when you were able to get this and explain it to someone else and bring them into this fold of gamers. Moreover, it was a way to bar entry to people who weren't quite up to the level of the game. If someone couldn't understand Thacko, how are they supposed to understand what different hit dice were versus the damage output of the person and what exactly a 17 charisma was good for and how it's different than a 17 constitution and a 17 strength and all of these different things. And let's not even talk about how the vampire is going to be attacking which one of your saves. Don't worry, it's not going to be attacking your save versus dragon's breath unless it's casting a spell which some vampires could do. And that was just a whole headache for someone. And if they couldn't understand simple facts, then it was, yeah, it was easy to say they really weren't up to the task of playing this game. There was an exclusive sort of nature to it. There was a sort of idea that you had to be part of this group. Similarly, with games like Vampire, Werewolf, and Mage, there was a dark sort of subject matter that only appealed to a specific group of people. In a sense, you knew a lot of things about someone just by the fact that they wanted to play the same World of Darkness game as you. If you both wanted to ch play Changeling the dreaming, that gave you something in common right away, because you knew by the nature of that decision that they were someone to whom this idea of dual worlds appealed, to whom this idea of a dark sort of fairy tale appealed. All of these things were implied by the desire to play this game. If you wanted to play vampire, you had a certain type of dark fantasy in mind, and it was further differentiated by players who had specific types of vampire game they wanted to play. I want to be Camarilla. I want to be Sabat. These implied things about the people who wanted to play those games. 
The next high point of old school gaming is really the rules mastery. Understanding and memorizing the different charts and different pages in the rulebook was a part of the game where you suddenly, you upgraded yourself. You as a player leveled up along with your character. And it gave you this bit of prestige. Oh, I've completely memorized the chart on page 138. How about you? There was a sense of an accomplishment just from being able to understand, internalize, and memorize the rules. To be able to remember exactly how things worked. To remember, for example, to be able to level up your rogue and give him the appropriate number of percentile points to add to his different roguish abilities every time you leveled up. All of these things were the idea of mastering the rules themselves. The rules were dense, thick, and heavy, and there was a lot to them. There was a lot to memorize, a lot to get into. Essentially, playing a mage character was vastly more complicated than playing a fighter, and mostly more complicated than playing a ranger or paladin. And there was an understanding of that, that players who could play wizards well had a specific level of rules mastery that implied that they were a better player for being able to do that. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I know that a lot of people paint that as this idea that the rules were made to be exclusionary, but it was really, it gave you a sense of accomplishment and achievement that you were able to go through this, to understand this, and to internalize this. It was a sort of personal achievement to be able to internalize and understand rules. Similarly, Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf the Apocalypse, and Mage the Ascension wove their rules into the narratives of the game. Jeremy, if I hand you an old World of Darkness Vampire the Masquerade book, uh, second edition, let's say, because the first edition was really badly done, but second edition, and said, go through this, find me all the rules. Where are you going to be looking? Uh... Everywhere, because it was a novel with rules mingled in the middle. Yeah, that's the thing, is they wove the rules into the narrative of the game. And in a sense, they did that because it supported the kind of game it was. It created this sense that the rules were intermingled with the world so closely that you couldn't understand the world without understanding the rules of the world. And you couldn't understand the rules of the world without understanding the world those rules were played out in. And once you got both of those things, they made sense on a very real level. The Blood Bond, for example, and various levels of the Blood Bond in Vampire the Masquerade were described in both narrative terms and rules terms in basically the same section. It would explain how you'd start to feel this sense of impenetrable love for the person that you were blood bonding yourself with, and that would give you certain rules benefits. But the real thing was understanding the narrative aspects of the rules, because it was a narrative storytelling game. And in that sense, they made it very intermingled with how the rules and narrative worked. So again, there was this sense of achievement, this sense of you have to understand the whole world to understand the rules. So that's the old school. Let's talk about the new school. What are the high points of new school gaming? Well, the first one we have is customization. In old school games, we had this shared setting. In the new school games, 
every single DM, every single player can add to the story. And create their own worlds, their own realities, and their own rules for the games in many cases. And here's a great example of that. Let's talk about the difference between the old school Changeling the Dreaming and the new school Changeling the Lost Chronicles of Darkness Edition. Now, Changeling the Lost Chronicles of Darkness Edition is still kind of in a beta version right now as of this particular episode's release. Having said that, the material that they've brought out is very clear about the direction they want to go with the game, and that direction is, again, toward this customization that we're talking about. In old school Changeling the Dreaming, there was the she and Unshi courts. I thought that was Seely Unseely. Yeah, the Seely Unseely courts. Let's go with that. So there's these two courts that are in this perpetual state of balance with each other, constantly fighting against each other. One is good and evil, but not in the sense that we think of good and evil. You know, it's it's this narrative element, but it's very strict in how these things work. It's a strict night and day difference. And then there's all these specific archetypes your characters have to fit into. New Changeling specifically gives you rules for creating your own court, your own way for the politics of your world to work, and your own way for your politics to work with the rules themselves. Again, there's this bind between the rules and the setting, just as there was before, but now it's about customization as opposed to a strict shared setting. So we're customizing our own courts, we're customizing our own characters with their own abilities, they're all mix and match, and take from here, take from there, It's all about creating a customized experience now, and all of the World of Darkness is like this. In Old World of Darkness, you had specific archetypes you had to choose from for your characters, for Rampire the Requiem, for example. In the old school, you chose a nature and demeanor from specific archetypes. Now, you just choose a presentation that you give to the world, and then a secret self that you are, and these are given in abstract terms that you can define however you like. There's no longer a strict list to choose from. And that's the big change that you keep seeing with these games is this change from having listicles and options to being able to express yourself and create your own choices for these things. As far as customization with 5th edition goes, you don't have setting-specific archetypes and character types. You more have the setting-specific groups that any character can fit into. You aren't You aren't specifically the paladin of the sun god. You're now a paladin with these oaths that can fit into any pantheon. And with that amount of customization, there really is no core setting, no core plane to be on. But with that, you can play on any of the game worlds you could possibly imagine. Yeah, so ultimately, your Sun Paladin is now a more general Sun Paladin and therefore can be inserted into any pantheon he needs to fit into, but then can be further customized to more accurately match the pantheon in question. He no longer has specific abilities from Paylor listed right in the rules. Now you have all these abstract abilities that you instead shoehorn into the Paladin of Paylor to make it match up with what your vision of a Paladin of Paylor should be. The next high point of new school gaming is approachability. Anyone can come and play a new school RPG. Anyone from the high school quarterback, the goth over there, the nerdy kids, the very, very popular kids, everyone is allowed to play a new school RPG. The games are made to be digestible now. Whereas it would be very difficult to get someone into 2nd edition D&D. There were a lot of rules to learn just to be able to play the game. Now it would actually be a fairly trivial thing to create a sort of tutorial level to play through for any character that gives you the basics of how the game is run and takes you through step by step everything about the game. 
Every year, I run a very challenging Halloween dungeon. And this past year, I had two players who had never played D&D before come in and try this super hard dungeon out. I didn't want the game itself to be the hard part. I didn't want them learning what they have to roll being the difficult part of this dungeon. I wanted the puzzles in the dungeon to be difficult. And they could pick it up. 5th edition is a wonderful place to just throw people into the deep end. Similarly, New World of Darkness is a lot more introductory in that sense. Yes, there is a large mythos to learn if you want to play the game exactly as it's written, but now a lot of that stuff is optional. There's not that much focus on interlocking the rules with the setting the same way. You still want that interlock, but now the setting is very modular. In As an example, in Old World of Darkness's Vampire the Masquerade, you basically add two sects of vampires, Camarilla and Sabad, and several outlying groups that don't even really count. Camarilla were the good guys in a sense, and Sabat were the bad guys in a sense. But now, as antagonists in the New World of Darkness, you have Belial's Brood and Seven, and both of them are basically choose whatever you want as being the explanation for what these groups are. Belial's Brood are demon-worshipping vampires. That we know for a fact. What does that mean? The Belial's Brood book gives you several options for what that means, and tells you several ways Ways you could take it beyond that. Seven is a group of vampires who hunt other vampires. What does that mean? The Seven book gives three specific reasons that this could exist, and they're all mutually exclusive. One of them being true excludes the other two from being true. It's an expansion pack sort of option. You choose which one you want to be your game, and then you build rules around that. The approachability, therefore, comes from the fact that you don't have to have a specific expectation for how the game plays out. You can introduce your players to these concepts throughout without them having to have a large understanding of a huge gestalt setting in order to become part of it. It no longer excludes them in the sense that it tells them exactly how they need to understand the game in order to play. Now it lets you introduce it your pace in your way. The last high point of new school games is rules application, where in the old school you had to memorize and master the rules, now it's learning how you want to apply the rules. In old school D&D, if I wanted to play Strider from Lord of the Rings, I'd play a ranger. If I got up to high enough levels, I might be able to match the same epicness that Strider had in the books. In new school D&D, in 5th edition, I'd play a ranger. Probably with the beast mastery, maybe with a focus on the two-handed weaponry, I'd probably take the feat that would apply my strength to my off-handed weapon. But I actually might go the undead hunting route to deal with the wraiths and whatnot. And with that, with those options, they let me paint the picture of my character the way I want to. In a sense, old school RPGs gave you sort of a puzzle that you assembled from different parts and therefore made your character. New school RPGs give you a lot closer to a paint and canvas, giving you all these parts to paint the character that you want to paint how you want to paint them. No longer is it about being able to assemble rules into specific categories that makes them work together so that you understand the character you are given to play. Now it is about building the character you want to play. And this expresses not only in the gamist games like D&D, but also in the new school narrativist games where there's an increased emphasis on painting your character 
character the way you want them to be. In a sense, it's about being able to apply the rules as they're given to you. You're given a toolbox of rules that you assemble into what you want, rather than being given specific archetypes in the rules that you work with and master these specific ways of playing the game. So, now that we've talked about the old school RPGs and new school RPGs, we really need to understand why there's a divide, why there are so many gamers who love the new school RPGs and hate old school RPGs, and why there are so many people who love old school RPGs and can't even stand the new school RPGs. Well, I mean, there's an investment of time. People who have learned older editions don't necessarily want to learn new editions just to play the same game they've been playing. Likewise, newer games are often viewed as easier by the people who have played the old school games. And it's a shame that there's that perception, because what makes a game challenging shouldn't be the game itself. Seeing the game as an obstacle to the game is kind of against the spirit of how games have developed over the last few decades. To a large degree, we want the challenges to be organic within the games and not the game itself. In a sense, a lot of old school gamers miss the game being part of the challenge. In 5th edition D&D, there is an adventure called the Tomb of Annihilation, based very strongly on the Tomb of Horrors. And it is hard, it is brutal, it's fair, but it's tough. And that's a big part of the way that gaming in general has progressed historically. When we talk about video games, for an example, there's this idea of Nintendo hard video games. And if you remember the old Nintendo games, a lot of times they were hard because they were unfair. They cheated you. Monsters would spawn directly inside of you. If you got hit, you'd lose all your power-ups and have to start over. The games were just brutal and often unfair. And in a sense, that was the challenge that people remember. New school games tend to be challenging in a different way. New school games like Cuphead and Dark Souls play by a fair set of rules and within that fair set of rules create these incredibly hard scenarios for you to play against. In a sense, I feel that's where RPGs have gone. We no longer have RPGs where you struggled against the rules trying to understand them and trying to make this game play for you in a way that worked. Now, we want to create these organic challenges that are fair and play within the rules of the game. So, it seems like in the past, we we were playing RPGs for one reason, and now we're playing RPGs for another reason. John, you uh, you kind of have a theory about how gaming is going to go into the future. You you were talking about this at length for a little bit. We have we have a little bit of time left in the episode. I'll, I'll let you have the floor. What do you uh, think is going on between old school games, new school games, and the future? Well, okay, I know this is going to sound a little bit pretentious, I already accept that, but Maslow's hierarchy of needs in psychology is the idea that humans want to satisfy certain very important needs and then can work on to these less important but equally beneficial needs. Needs that are pressing versus needs that are simply for our edification. For instance, we have our basic physiological needs. We don't want to be on fire. We don't want to starve. Then we have our safety needs. We want to be somewhere secure. Then we have our needs for love and belonging, which is just having social networks. Then we have our needs for esteem, which is our ability to accomplish things. And finally, we talk about self-actualization, which is our need to express ourselves creatively. Now, 
In games, we actually see a progression along this lines. Early games are all about survival. We take up archery, wrestling, even things like tickling, which we think of as being kind of a pretty harmless social activity that we just take part in with children or with other adults in weird, silly settings, is really actually a game we use to protect ourselves. What parts of your body are most ticklish? Typically, the vital organs, places where you are very vulnerable, your neck, your armpits, your sides, plate parts of your body that are vulnerable. Tickling gives us a chance to protect ourselves. It's a game that has a purpose. Similarly, other games have purposes. We create rhymes because they're easy to remember, but we use them to remind ourselves of important things. Leaves of three, leave them be. We don't touch poison ivy because we all remember that little rhyme. Early games are all about these physiological needs. We're throwing things, we're catching things, we're, we're wrestling with each other. Then we talk about more sophisticated games where we start to use logic and we use them to build these concepts of safety and these concepts of protection. We play games like chess, which are about protecting vital areas and being able to comprehend what's important and what's safe. Then we talk about team games, where we start to create these games with teams, where we are creating social networks of players who play in hierarchies that allow us to solve our social needs. This is where we start to see war games and RPGs emerging with these sort of social networks. And a lot of times, that's what the games were about, is forming social networks. More and more, games have stopped being about forming social networks. We use existing social networks and instead use games that give us this concept of being able to be achievers, of accomplishing things. And with newest games, with games that are starting to emerge, we see games as a form of expression. We start to see games as ways of creating these characters, these vivid images of ourselves, these ideas. Where are games going to go in the future? Well, Maslow suggested that perhaps there was something even beyond self-actualization, a sort of transcendence, this idea of reaching a sort of infinite accomplishment. How can games do this? I have no idea, but I am excited to see what direction gaming goes from here. Where we go once we get past the need to simply express ourselves, to create these worlds and ideas that are so innately our own that we can share with people we love and, and appreciate. So that's my idea of why gaming has developed the way it has. It all follows this sort of hierarchy of needs, where we went from having games that just solved our needs for belonging and friendship, and now we are on to games that are about expressing ourselves. So, that is old school versus new school RPGs. What do we have next on the docket? It says, oh. We're going to get a little less abstract and a little more onto something specific. And one of our favorite completed games, a game that has finished its entire production cycle and done everything it's going to do, but is still an amazing example. We are talking about Sentinels of the Multiverse, specifically the card game. They are putting out more things that deal with the Sentinels products, but we're talking about the card game next time. It'll be wonderful, so stay tuned for that. Alright, thank you very much. This has been Save vs. Rant. The band Semisonic once said, Every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you.